Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest Vince Beiser invites you to look at the world around you in an entirely revolutionarily new way. He invites us on a journey to consider sand and the impact that it has had, not just on our world, but on our thinking, our building, and even the ways that we worship. He talks to us about his recent book, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transforms civilization. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Vince Beiser. He's an award-winning journalist. His work has appeared in Wired, Harper's, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, and The New York Times, among other publications. He's a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley. He lives in Los Angeles. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Vince Beiser, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. I have to say... When I first picked up your book, I thought, how am I going to stay interested in sand? And I will say that by the end of the first chapter, I was hooked, and I couldn't put it down. It is a monumental undertaking that you've done to show readers how the world has been changed by something that I would argue is so commonplace we don't think about it. And that's really kind of the thesis of your book. But the place that I want to start is with a phrase that jumped out at me. Saudi Arabia has a sand problem. They're worried about running out of sand. Help me understand why Saudi Arabia, which is surrounded by desert, would be worried about running out of sand. Right. Absolutely crazy on its face, right? Well, to explain that, let me just give you some, some quick context. So why, why do we even care about sand at all, right? It just seems like the most trivial and unimportant thing in the world. But in fact... It's the most important solid substance on Earth. And that is because it's the raw material that we build our cities out of, right? If you look around pretty much any building that gets put up anywhere in the world today, the building you're probably sitting in right now, any shopping mall or hotel or apartment complex that gets built anywhere from Nigeria to Indonesia is made of concrete, right? And concrete is basically just sand that's been glued together. Right, And all the roads that connect all those buildings are also made out of concrete or asphalt, which is also made out of sand. Every piece of glass in every one of those buildings, all the windows, the glass in our cars, the glass in your eyeglasses, also made out of sand. Right, Glass is just melted down sand. And even the silicon chips that power our computers and our cell phones made from sand. So in short, no sand, no modern civilization. You need lots and lots of sand to build modern cities. And like pretty much every other country in the world, Saudi Arabia is building cities very rapidly. They're, they're urbanizing, which is happening all over the world. So 
okay, should be no problem, right? Saudi Arabia needs lots of sand for all that concrete. They got a huge desert. Well, the problem is the number one thing that we need that sand for is to make concrete. And desert sand just doesn't work to make concrete. What we need for concrete is the kind of sand that you find at the bottom of rivers, the bottom of lakes, sand that's been eroded by water, because those grains kind of have are more angular. They've got more sort of sharp edges and corners, whereas desert sand has been eroded by wind over thousands, millions of years, and that's made the grains kind of rounded like little balls. So they just don't lock together like a solid structure the way that you need them to to make concrete. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of little marbles as opposed to a stack of little bricks. So all that desert sand is useless to Saudi Arabia, and it's useless to the rest of us as well, which is why, believe it or not, the world is facing a shortage of sand. We're actually starting to run out of the stuff. And this is what fascinated me about your book, The World in a Grain. You walk the reader through the fact that there's not just one kind of sand. As you've begun to describe, there are so many different gradations of sand. It depends on where the sand comes from and what conditions the sand has been subjected to. And that really determines the ways in which that sand can be used. I would have thought that if you simply walked out to a beach or walked out to a a dusty road, you could basically pick up the same stuff and it would have the same set of uses. I came to find out reading your book, that's not at all true. And you use this image of the different types of sand being like different types of soldiers. And some of them are the most elite Delta Force soldiers. And those are the very high quartz sand crystals that get used in things like silicon chips. And then there are more kind of everyday pedestrian types of sand. And then there's some of the sand, like you've said, that really has almost no use at all, that desert sand that we find surrounding Saudi Arabia. And I'm fascinated by all of this, but I I have to wonder, how in the world, Vince Beiser, did you get on the sand beat? How did it come to pass that you spent so much time learning about and reporting about sand? Excellent question. And believe me, if you'd told me four or five years ago that this was going to become, you know, one of the main things that I'd be spending all my time on would be sand, I would have just thought you're nuts. But basically what happened is this. So I'm a, I'm a full-time freelance journalist. So I'm always hustling for a good story. And I'm very interested in, in international issues, especially. So I read a lot of foreign press and sort of out-of-the-way publications. And I ran across a story a few years ago in an Indian newspaper, a newspaper from India, about a guy who had been murdered over sand. And I just thought, what, sand? Why in the world would anybody get killed over sand? Like, who cares about sand, right? It's just that annoying stuff that, you know, just gets in your bathing suit at the beach, you know, and piles up on the bottom of your of your car. Like, why in the world is makes what makes sand so valuable that it's worth killing for? So that got me started, and I started looking into it and found out that not only had this one particular uh, farmer that I was reading about, not only had he been murdered over sand, but hundreds of people have been murdered over sand in the last few years. And the reason for that is, you know, like I said, it's actually this incredibly important commodity that is starting to run short in a lot of places. And as a result, We are doing tremendous environmental damage all over the world, ripping up riverbeds and beaches to get that sand. And in some places, it's gotten so bad 
that organized crime has gotten into the industry. And they do what organized crime does everywhere. They pay off judges and police officers and whoever else to leave them alone. But if you really get in their way, they will kill you. And it turns out that's what happened with this one particular farmer. So anyway, I wound up going over to India for Wired magazine and kind of investigated this guy's murder and wrote a whole story about that. And that, through the process of that, that I realized, wow, there's a much bigger story here. Like, not only is this amazing that there's all this, you know, uh, violence and, and destruction that goes with the sand trade, but who knew that sand was so incredibly important? And, you know, it turns out that all these things that we use it for also have this really fascinating science and history behind them all. So, anyway, before you knew it, I was I was too deep down the rabbit hole to... Uh, I wouldn't emerge again for quite some time. Well, and the story that you tell about going to India is a story that has intrigue and twists and turns. You would think that at the heart of that story was something like diamonds or drugs, but it turns out that it's, it's again, it's a sand mining operation that is clandestinely doing tremendous damage to the surrounding environment there in India. And the people who were trying to get the country to actually make good on its laws to stop this. They were the ones who were getting who were getting murdered in this particular moment simply because they wanted to protect the sand. To me, that was such a fascinating moment because, and we'll talk more about this through the conversation, but the ways in which something so common as sand is so tied in with corruption, and that blew my mind. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that's really how they get away with it. I mean, what you have is is in places like India, where this, the violence around sand is really at its worst. They call them the sand mafia, right? Which sounds kind of funny to us, but it's actually, they're very serious criminal outfits. And they're, they get away with it on a really big scale because there's so much corruption in the system, because it's easy for them to just, you know, tear up an entire, you know, hundreds of acres of farmland to dig up sand, which is what happened in, in this case that I investigated, or to just tear up a riverbed or steal an entire beach and get away with it because there's so much corruption. You know, you pass around a few bucks to the right police officers, the right government inspectors, maybe a journalist or two, and you can get away with an awful lot. And this is what I want my listeners to begin to understand, is that when we're talking about sand, we're talking about two extremes of the economic scale. So is it, first of all, am I correct that I could buy a couple of tons of sand for not a lot of money. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, basic your basic construction sand, the stuff that we use in, in concrete, yeah, you can get a, a ton of it for five, ten bucks in this country. And yet, I'm here in Chicago, a city who one of their first billionaires here in Chicago was Henry Crown. And Henry Crown made his fortune largely on the trading and the mining of sand. Tell me how he did that. That's right. So, uh, yeah, it's an amazing story that the fortunes that have been made from sand and Henry Crown is really one of the great examples. So basically what happened is around early in the 1900s, in the early 20th century, Chicago was booming, right? Chicago was this really fast-growing city, and concrete had only very quite recently come into favor as, as a building material. Like, it was pretty much modern concrete was more or less invented right around the, in the very early 1900s and very quickly took off and became the most popular building material in the world, which it still is by far. So 
Chicago is this brand new city. It's growing really fast. It's using loads and loads of concrete to build all those buildings along the lakefront and the roads and everything else that goes with it. So they needed an awful lot of sand. And you know, Mr. Crown was a young, a young guy just looking to make a buck and realized there was a market for this stuff. And so first he started, he started out by selling it. And he would buy it from sand miners, as they're called, people who actually dig up the sand and then sell it to the contractors. But pretty soon he realized that, you know, he'd, he'd make even more money if, if they did the mining themselves. So he got into the sand mining business and started, a lot of the sand comes from the bottom of, of the Great Lakes or from over on the Indiana side. And that's how, that's how Lester Crown got his start. And from there, you know, he sort of built his empire on that foundation of sand and then branched out into more and more and more industries and, you know, eventually wound up one of America's wealthiest men. What fascinated me when you told that story is that when people would talk to him about all of his accomplishments, he would refer to himself as just a simple, a simple miner, a simple sand trader. Like he, he never lost touch with that root of his fortune, did he? That's right. He called himself a sand and gravel man. That's where it all started. And we'll pick up on some of these pieces as we get into the show. But for right now, we're going to step away and take a break just for a moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Vince Beiser. We're talking about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Vince Beiser. He's the author of the recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Well, I do a show on religion, and I think a lot about the kind of cultural structures around faith and religious practice. And when I was reading your book, The World in a Grain, I got thinking about what happens when you walk into a church and at first I thought, well, there's, there's really not a lot of connection between sand and churches. And then I began to realize, oh my goodness, churches, particularly ornate large ones, they are built oftentimes of concrete, or even if they're built of stone, they've got mortar in between the stones. And then I got started thinking about stained glass, and I, and, and I realized how much of modern religious architecture is tied in with this economy of sand that you're talking about. But those are the most visibly evident things that I'm thinking of. But I'd invite you to help me think of some of the unseen aspects, the ways that sand affects the construction of religious spaces with me for a moment or two. What are some things that I'm not thinking of besides the building materials and the stained glass that go into making a religious experience? Wow, that's a great question. I have to say, you know, I, I, I've been talking a lot about sand for quite a few years now, and that, that's the first time anybody's ever asked me that. Huh, well, let me take a stab at it. So first of all, sand, sand is used as a sort of sacred object in at least a few different religions around the world. The Navajo 
use it for their sand paintings, right? If you've ever seen it, they literally take different colored sand and and use the sand itself as the medium to draw pictures with, which often have, um, you know, religious and spiritual significance. And in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, there's a tradition of making sand mandalas. If you go, if you just, you know, Google image this, there's beautiful, beautiful, really big-scale mandalas that um, the Buddhist monks make out of sand. So the stuff itself is often, often sort of used in a religious context. And then, you know, as far as building places of worship, I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, the concrete that's there, the mortar that, uh, that holds the stone blocks together, the stained glass in the windows, even the sometimes the paint, a lot of paints are actually also made with uh, with sand. Wine, I don't, I can't say for sure that uh, that communion wine is made with sand, but a lot of uh, a lot of wines are they use sand as at the very end as what they call a fining agent to sort of actually like just sort of put the last bit of refinement. So it's possible that uh, that your communion wine might have been made with sand. See, this is fascinating to me, and this is why I wanted to ask you the question, because I think even if, even if we were to say to a person walking into a church, what are the ways in which you're interacting with common sand right now? They might begin to scratch the surface, but you've, you've already begun to dig down. It, it goes into the artwork, the decoration, and even the sacramental aspects. But there's another piece of the story of how sand impacts religion that is in your book, The, the World in a Grain, that fascinated me. Sand very fine quartz sand is made into glass. And centuries ago, glass began to be used for telescopes. And that ties into the story of Galileo. If we think about how glass has affected religious life in the West, I can't think of anything more impactful than the fact that a couple of pieces of glass held against one another in the right way began to open up the universe and the mysteries of space in such a way that an entire revolution happened in the thinking of both secular and religious people. God was dethroned by those little pieces of glass kind of being held, you know, in the right arrangement. And that's, to me, a fascinating part of your story, the ways in which uh, sand is used to change thinking about things. And I'm wondering, so when we think about something like that, like a a revolution that comes out of sand, I've talked about a religious revolution, but I'm sure that you have one or two other examples of complete revolutions that have happened, not simply in the religious realm, but maybe in the wider wider civilization that come as a result of using sand in a new way. What would be one or two of those? Wow. Well, I think you really, that's that's a really fascinating way to think about the, the impact that, that lenses had. God was dethroned by them. That's, yeah, I like that. That's heavy. Um, that was definitely one of the things that really, that I had never considered before and that really kind of blew my mind while I was doing my research is how important lenses have been, right? So, so lenses are made of ground of glass, which is made out of sand, pretty high-quality sand to make lenses. But at the invention of the lens, in so many ways, just completely, I mean, it's really the foundation of the scientific revolution, right? So we have lenses and telescopes that let us see things that are far away, like you said, you know, that really gave us a much more accurate picture of the cosmos and our place in it than we've ever had before. Um, And that continues up to this day. I mean, all of the, you know, the most sophisticated telescopes in the world still use glass lenses. And the one uh, 
There's one not far from where I live at Mount Palomar that's got a 20-ton glass lens. So we've got lenses that let us see things that are far away. And, of course, also microscope lenses, right, which are also made of glass. This incredible instrument that lets us see things that are, you know, invisible to the naked eye and that completely upended our understanding of our world, you know, of what our bodies are composed of, of how diseases work, of what our blood is, how, you know, all these things that uh, these breakthroughs, these incredible leaps in understanding that were made possible by our vision, right? I mean, I think lenses almost give us superpowers, right? Like they give us the ability to see things that are miles and miles away, and they give us the ability to see things that that are incredibly tiny. And those powers, like I say, those are really, without those things, it's impossible to imagine the scientific revolution. In fact, there's some folks that I've read have suggested that that's one reason why Europe really leapt ahead of uh, places like China and Japan in the Middle Ages or in the, you know, in the, during the Renaissance and the scientific revolution is because we had glass and they didn't. And we'd like glass, glass blowing was really something that was perfected in, in Europe. And the idea of using glass as lenses was a European invention. And it was introduced quite a bit later into China and Japan by European missionaries. But by then, we had such a head start on them, so the thinking goes, that we had this huge techno- scientific and technological advance that we kept for, for centuries. Let me make sure I've heard you correctly. We're not saying that the Eastern civilizations were backwards in any way, because certainly they invented printing, they invented paper, they invented, they invented gunpowder, and in some cases did that many, many years before we did in the West. But what, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that the fact that we adopted glass and optics is what I'm hearing you saying as a way of doing our investigations in the world that was not taken up in the East in the same way that it was in the West. And that gave us a technological advantage at a crucial time. Have I heard you correctly? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the civilizations of of Asia are, you know, are much older than Europe. And, you know, it's always been a big historical question. Well, how did Europe rise up out of the dark ages and suddenly like surge ahead to become the most scientifically, technologically advanced power center of, you know, of the last few centuries. And I don't know this for sure, but like I say, it's one idea is that one of the huge advantages that we had was the discovery of lenses, basically, that that Europe developed glass that could be used for lenses. And so that, you know, that unlocked the whole potential of the scientific revolution, which, and that that was just a technology that that China and Japan just didn't have. They weren't interested in. They knew about glass, but they just thought it was kind of this, you know, cute decorative thing, which was what it was for most of human history. But we had, it was European scientists that, that first figured out like, aha, telescopes, aha, microscopes. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Vince Beiser. He's an award-winning journalist, and we're talking about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Well, just a moment ago, we were talking about the ways in which telescopes were used to see the very far away and microscopes were used to see the very small, both examples of sand being used in optics. There's one other way in which I think in your book, sand 
in this fashion is used to change the world, and that's in the case of warfare. Because being able now with a telescope to see a ranged enemy far away and being able to mount that telescopic apparatus, that ability to see far away on something like a gun sight, that suddenly changes the way that we do warfare, doesn't it? Yeah, that's very true. Well, that and that was actually the very first real practical application of, of lenses. The telescope was the first optical instrument that was invented, and they immediately, it was immediately taken up by militaries. I think it was the Dutch army that first realized, like, hey, this is going to be a super useful tool for the battlefield. Well, and when we think about that, so that leads to the level of now we have military secrets, now we have state secrets. And one of the things that really jumped out to me, particularly towards the end of your book, is that when we're talking about, you know, the creation of something like a microchip, or we're talking about, you know, a couple centuries back, the creation of a better optical lens, we can understand how that might be some kind of intellectual property that needs protection. But you encountered the protection of secrets and intellectual property even at the point of simply digging the sand up out of the ground, didn't you? I mean, you tell stories in your book, The World in a Grain, where you would go and simply try and take a picture of a sand mine, and the security guard would walk out and say, what you doing? <laughs> what, why, why would a sand mining operation need to have secrecy about its practices? Yeah, well, this is one per very specific sand mine that you're talking about in a very specific place that is absolutely fascinating. So it's an area called Spruce Pine in the mountains of North Carolina. And Spruce Pine, North Carolina, is this quite remote, not terribly wealthy corner of Appalachia that just happens to have the purest silica sand ever found anywhere on Earth incredibly, incredibly pure sand, and pretty much every single computer chip in the world owes its manufacture to this sand. So it's an absolutely crucial part of the whole high-tech manufacturing chain. It's the sand that comes out of this place, and it's pretty much almost entirely monopolized by one company, a Belgian mining company that has bought up the rights to mine almost all of this ultra-ultra-pure sand. And they don't want anybody else learning anything at all about where they get it, how much of it they're getting, any of the processes that they use to extract it. They're incredibly, incredibly secretive about it because they've pretty much got a monopoly on, you know, this incredibly rare, incredibly valuable product. I mean, I said before, you know, you can buy a ton of ordinary construction sand for 5 or 10 bucks. A ton of, of this stuff, of this ultra-high purity sand, is, is more like tens of thousands of dollars. But if you were to estimate then, this one company, how much money per year it's making by taking this ultra-pure sand out of the ground, just a ballpark estimate, are we talking hundreds of thousands of dollars? Are we talking millions of dollars? Are we talking billions of dollars? How much profit does this one company make from mining sand out of this one area of uh, spruce pine? Well, I'm, I'm only guessing because they don't release any of that information at all. And uh, basically wouldn't, and wouldn't, I mean, I tried very hard to get some information from them. I, you know, as you said, I went in person to their mine. I called their headquarters. I faxed them. I emailed them. 
couldn't get really didn't get a single thing from them. So I'm I'm really just guessing, but it's I mean, it's definitely way up into the millions for sure. It's a very big operation. There's lots of big machines and a lot of capital investment there. So it's, it's many, many millions of dollars and probably, I would guess, in the low billions. And so that amount of money is going into the mining operation. And again, we're guesstimating, but but on a year-to-year basis. And then it gets turned around, it gets refined, and it gets turned into computer chips. And those computer chips can be sold for top dollar. The, the fastest processing can can sell for hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars. But describe for my listeners what the town of Spruce Pine is like. Are they rolling in dough? Is the money coming back to that area? Or is this literally, in the same way that the sand is being extracted, the profits and the profitability is being extracted away from this area? Yeah, it's it's very much the latter. Yeah, but, I mean, Spruce Pine is a very small town. It was It's, it's always been a mining town, or it was a mining town for a long time, The thing that they used to mine was mica, which is another mineral that that was that used to be used much more in industrial manufacturing and isn't really anymore. And to the extent that we use it, now we pretty much buy it from India. So almost all the mining jobs are are gone from Spruce Pine. It's a very lovely place, but it's pretty you know, I don't want to say it's impoverished. I've certainly been to, to poorer places in in the United States and in Appalachia, but it's pretty, it's, it's struggling. You know, their, their little downtown is, there's a small downtown that used to have, you know, movie theaters and restaurants and stuff. I'd say about half of the buildings, the businesses there are boarded up and it's a tough place to make a living. You know, like they're just, uh, the mines, like I said, the mining jobs have mostly gone away. So there's a college nearby, but it's basically like people are really kind of, like a lot of, of, of rural places in America, people are really just kind of struggling. You know, one of the folks that I interviewed there is a really top-notch geologist who's probably one of the, you know, he's one of the world's biggest experts on this very rare sand, but he doesn't work for the mining company. He sort of does consulting here and there, and to make ends meet, he grows Christmas trees on his land. So that, that gives you an idea. Like everybody who's there is, you know, kind of, you know, scraping to make ends meet and, and, and doing some kind of side hustle or another. There are a few jobs, a few local jobs that are created by the silica sand mining operations, but most of it's mechanized and most of the jobs there, you know, they're, they, they need very specialized skills. So they, they bring in a lot of outside folks to operate those jobs. So yeah, not very little of the money that comes out of the sticks in Spruce Pine. That's the bottom line. Well, and this is something that hit me again and again in reading your book, The World in a Grain, and that is when we look at a mining operation, when we look at sand being dug up from a place, it creates local problems. It creates health problems. It creates depressions in the economy. It does not benefit the people that are closest to the physical hole in the ground. And those resources go somewhere else and become profitable for someone else. It's almost as if in the same way that we talked about how the telescope, you know, the grinding up of the sand into lenses to make a telescope made warfare able to be distant. Now our economics of sand are very distant where the profit comes very, very far away from the place where the sand itself is dug up. That broke my heart. I wonder, how did it affect you when you were coming and engaging with these stories and discovering these various, very human costs to the extraction of sand? 
Yeah, I mean, it's terrible, I'll tell you. I mean, listen, I don't want to say that all sand mining has terrible impacts and, you know, is terrible for the communities where, it's, where it happens. That's, that's not the case. It's not always like that, especially in, in this country and in, in countries where there's decent, a relatively decent amount of, of environmental regulation and the rest of it. You can do it in such a way that it's not so, so destructive. Not to say there aren't problems that come with sand mining in this country. There definitely are a lot of environmental damage, a lot of communities, you know, that are suffering because of it. But that's not, I don't want to, I just don't want to condemn the entire industry across the board. Where it's really at its worst is in a lot of developing countries where the regulations are much scanter. And like I said, there's a lot more corruption. And that's where you really see just wholesale destruction of people's livelihoods. You know, I mean, I've been to places where you know, the fishing communities have had their living wiped out because sand miners came in, tore up all the sand out of the bottom of the local lake, and killed all the fish in the process. You know, or places where literally uh, gangs have come in and seized villagers' farming land, ripped up all the crops, and dug up the sand. So, yeah, in, in some places it has these really terrible impacts. And then, of course, there's the fear with it, like we were talking about at the beginning. Like, in some places... You know, the sand mafia has literally taken over and intimidated, threatened, harassed, and even killed folks to try to stop them. It's really, and the fact that so few people even know about it is really one of the most amazing things to me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Vince Beiser. He's an award-winning journalist, and he's written for Wired, Harper's, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, and The New York Times. We were talking about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Vince Beiser. He is an award-winning journalist, and he writes for Wired, Harper's, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, The New York Times, among other publications. We're talking about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Well, there's a section at the very end of your book in the conclusion, and I've asked you to read it for my listeners so that they can get a sense of how the book ends. And from there, we'll go into a conversation from this end point that you raise at the conclusion of your book, The World in a Grain. All right. The sands of time are running out. Our houses are built upon sand. Pick your metaphor, but understand it's not just a metaphor. Sand is the floor beneath our feet and the roof over our head. It is the substrate of modernity. On top of it, we have built an economy and a society that depends on sand for far more purposes 
than Ernest Ransom, Michael Owens, and even Dwight D. Eisenhower could have dreamed of. And yet, sand is about the most taken-for-granted natural resource in the world. Hardly anyone thinks about it, where it comes from or what we do to get it. But in a world of 7 billion people, more and more of whom want apartments to live in, offices to work in, malls to shop in, and cell phones to communicate with, we can't afford that luxury anymore. It once seemed like we had such boundless supplies of oil, water, trees, and land that we didn't need to worry about them. But of course, we're learning the hard way that none of those things are infinite, and the price we've paid so far for using them is rising fast. We're having to learn to conserve, reuse, find alternatives for, and generally get smarter about how we use those natural resources. We have to start thinking that way about sand, too. But we also need to understand that the bigger issue isn't just about being more careful or smarter about how we use individual resources. It's about how we use all those resources. It's about figuring out a way to build a life for 7 billion people on a foundation sturdier than sand. And that's our guest, Vince Beiser, reading from his book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. As I got to the end of the book, I felt really cynical. And the reason why is because every time that you would tell a different angle of the story, I would find a different point where people were finding ways to bring corruption into the process. So we're talking about trying to regulate natural resources, whether we're talking about clean air or access to clean water or even sand (laughs) so that people, like you said in the last segment, can make a living from fishing or can breathe without having uh, silicosis come into their lungs. But at every point where we need something like a government to step in, you found points, or you found many points, I should say, not all of them, but many points where there was a bribe or someone was getting paid off or there was violence or threat of violence that was making someone cease to object. And that made me feel really cynical about the fact that right now we're seeing our world being eroded and destroyed, and it didn't seem like there were any mechanisms in place that could really help to stop that process of erosion. And first of all, am I just being way too bleak or am I reading the back half of your book correctly? Is it really as bad as I read it to be or have I missed something and it's actually better than I'm characterizing it here? Wow. You're the one with the podcast about faith. You're supposed to have a little more faith in that, aren't you? You wrote a really good book, and it just it took, it took the wind out of my sails. I mean, when I'll be honest with you, when, when I was reading about the—because, again, we're talking about literally people coming in the dead of night and digging up beaches and trucking them away. And so people who are dependent upon the economy of the beach or the eco-structure of the beach, they wake up in the morning and their livelihood is gone, and no one can help them, it seems. That really was like a, a punch in the stomach for me. Yeah, well, I'd say you read it. You read it right. I mean, it's it's terrible. I mean, there's all around the world. You know, like I said, there's tremendous damage that's being done to the to the environment and to people's livelihoods, and sometimes to people's lives. So, is there any hope? Well, I I think so. I hope so. I mean, it'll really it it takes a lot. Of course, and, and I don't think things are going to improve anytime really soon. 
But I guess the, the message that I really like to try to drive home is this. I mean, there are certainly specific things that we can and should be doing to minimize the damage of sand mining. We can have better environmental regulations here and especially in other countries. We can have better enforcement of those regulations, which means tackling corruption, right, which we can and should be doing more of. We can look to technological solutions that that can help, things like uh, more recycling of concrete, looking for alternatives to concrete. Again, concrete is really the number one thing that we need sand for. That's the thing that's really driving most of the problems we're talking about. So all those things can help, and all those things are to the good. But, you know, the way that I wrote those last pages the way that I did is because I think it's a mistake to think of sand or any one of these problems of water, of of forests, of any diminishing natural resource in isolation and just think, okay, what can we do to preserve freshwater dolphins? Or what can we do to save, you know, the the Indonesian, you know, redwood. You know, these are all symptoms of the same problem in my mind, which is just that we're, we just consume too much. The, the, the way of living that we've invented here in the Western world is just way too resource intensive to sustain with this many people on it. So the only real solution, long-term solution in my mind is, we have got to change that. We've got to change our whole paradigm of living. We've got to figure out ways to live our lives and especially to build our cities because cities is now where most of the human race lives. We've got to find ways to build our cities more efficiently, more sustainably in ways that use fewer resources. And, and that, I think, is doable. Okay. Well, sand leads to concrete, and concrete is cheap. Mm-hmm. And so the economics say that concrete will continue to be the building material of choice until, well, and I want to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly. Are we talking about finding a better, cheaper alternative to concrete using our scientific know-how, or are we talking about perhaps biting the bullet and saying even if concrete is cheaper, we need to do something like regulate concrete or outlaw concrete in favor of a more expensive building material that is more ultimately sustainable? Uh, which direction do you think is the, is the better direction for us to be going, and which is the more realistic direction for us to go? Well, I think it's more like this. So first of all, sure, if we can find, you know, whatever, if there are better alternatives to concrete, like people are looking at, you know, wood, using wood, uh, treated wood to make skyscrapers now, and bamboo in some places, I think that's great. But indeed, concrete's actually a really good building material. There's a reason why they use it all over the world. It's cheap. It's easy to work with. uh, It's very strong. It's very flexible. It's actually a really good building material. And it's an upgrade. I mean, for hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people around the world, a concrete structure to live in would be a big upgrade. You know, it's it's much more sanitary than, you know, living in in a... shanty or a hut with a dirt floor or a roof that doesn't keep out the rain. So concrete is, I mean, on can be a very, very good thing. I think the real thing is we have to just use less of it, much less of it. So how can we do that? I mean, one way to think about it, or one possible solution is, let's try to reduce car ownership. You might say, well, what does car ownership have to do with concrete and sand? Well, if you think about it, 
And here in the United States, your typical house has comes with a garage and usually like a two-car garage and a driveway to get your car into the garage, right? Now, if you lived, if we could arrange our cities, if we organized our cities better so that they were denser, so that there was more, so that you didn't need a car to get around. If you could get around by public transport or by bicycle or even by walking and you didn't need a car, well, then you wouldn't need a house with a garage and a driveway. And right there, you've saved hundreds of tons of concrete and of sand. So I'm not talking about, I'm not saying everybody needs to give up their car. That's not going to happen. But if we could just reduce car ownership by, say, 10%, right, and all of a sudden 10% of new housing doesn't need garages, doesn't need driveways, it means that we can build our, our highways don't need to be quite as big. We can shave a few lanes off them. Bridges don't have to be quite as strong because they'll have 10% fewer cars going over them. Parking lots can be shrunk by 10%. I mean, just imagine how much space, how much concrete goes into parking lots in Chicago alone. Well, if you could shrink that by 10%, that's thousands and thousands of tons of concrete that you're saving there, of sand. And by reducing car ownership, you also reduce carbon dioxide emissions, right, which helps you with climate change. You save on all kinds of other natural resources. You basically, by saving in one area, you have this ripple effect of saving, of conserving resources in lots of other areas. Those are the kinds of solutions that, that I think we should be looking at. It's just how can we consume less of everything? And there are ways that we could, you know, without really impacting our quality of life too much, I really believe there are ways that we can just live a little smaller and in that way, you know, make sure that there's enough to go around for everybody. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Vince Beiser about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. So just a moment ago, you said two things that we can do, and one is to be smarter about how we think about resources, to use less intentionally, and to reduce the total footprint of what we're using in terms of car ownership and construction. But the other thing that I heard you say, and I want to make sure I've got this right, is that we need to stop thinking about the problems as individual problems. But I almost heard you say we need to think about this as kind of an organic interconnection, where the plight of the dolphins in the sea is not disconnected from the dredging of sand on the shore, and it's not disconnected from the car that we're driving down the Eisenhower freeway, right? It's all of these things, we need to start thinking of them in terms of their global impact, even something very removed from another problem can be related to that problem. Have I heard that part of your of your thinking correctly? Yeah, exactly. I mean, not that every single problem we face in the world can be, you know, has these same connections, but a lot of them do. You know, a lot of our problems, environmental problems, stem from the same thing, which is just overconsumption, just using too much stuff. You know, what, I mean, number one is, of course, you know, we burn too much oil and that's created climate change, which is the number one problem that we're facing. But that's not, indeed, like you say, that's connected to our use of everything else. Why do we burn so much oil? Well, you know, why do we use so much energy? Well, because we have these oversized houses that are over, you know, that we overheat and we overcool and we have these oversized cars that we drive much more than we need to. And, you know, and they take up a lot of resources. And if we can, by seeing those connections, you can, you can find ways where you can reduce it. And those 
very often that has knock-on effects, right? If you use less paper, you cut down fewer trees. You cut down fewer trees, you have more space for wildlife. There's a way in which many of these issues are, are connected, and I think can all be helped. Or many of these issues can really be helped by addressing the, that central issue of overconsumption or of unsustainable use of resources. Now, when we started out our conversation, you, you said that five years ago, you couldn't imagine that you would have spent so much time thinking about sand. And here you've produced a book that is sort of showing all of these interconnections, the ways in which sand is literally the bedrock. It's the fundament, as you say, of, of modern civilization. It's the, it's the most important solid substance on the planet. And I'm wondering, after now this process of reporting, how has your thinking about the world changed? Like you have now seen a kind of fundamental, essential element of modern life and looked at it with a level of clarity that most people never pay to something so ubiquitous. How has it changed the way that you think about the world that we live in? How has it changed the way that you think about your place in that world? Well, I'll tell you one thing that's really stuck with me from this reporting, and that is the importance of cities, which I hadn't really fully appreciated before. The world has changed very rapidly just in the last 30 years, and one of the most significant changes is that we've become an urbanized planet. We now have more than half the human race now lives in cities, 4.2 billion people in cities. So really, when we talk about the future, when we talk about, you know, how are we going to keep this planet livable for all those people, we really have to start with cities. And that's, that's one of the things when I talk about how, you know, these, these issues are interconnected. A lot of it comes from the, that fact that people have moved into cities and they're living more modern lifestyles and they're living much more resource-intensive lifestyles. So if we really... That's where we kind of need to focus a lot of our efforts, you know, because usually, typically, when you, at least I, you know, when you would say, oh, there's an environmental problem, the first thing that comes to my mind is not a city. It's, you know, some beautiful forest somewhere or some mountain watershed or whatever. But in a way, you know, one of the takeaways that I get is that's not where we should be looking. Where we really need to be looking to make changes is in cities and how people live in cities, because that really dictates so much of how we use resources and how, what we use them for. You know, the cities are the reasons why we're damming rivers and cutting down forests and harvesting sand and all the rest of it. So if we can change how we live, we can make positive changes in how we design cities, how we build cities, how we live in cities. That will have a huge knock-on effect on the natural world, on the, you know, on, on non-urban areas. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is the kind of way that we approach, because we oftentimes think of cities as being just kind of places where people are piled on top of one another and quality of life goes down. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're talking about going about the project of building cities more intelligently so that the quality of life is maintained, but the efficiencies of life, the economies of scale are maximized. Have I heard that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Well, that's going to take not just good writing. It's going to take good politics. It's going to mean a change in the way that we think about our leadership in places, not just in America, but globally, because what you're talking about is going to demand not just an American change, but it's going to demand a change in China and North Korea and Dubai, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's <laughs> it's a very tall order, for sure. But I'll tell you something. I mean, in some ways, there are a lot of encouraging signs. I mean, like this business about reducing car ownership. I mean, first of all, most of the world doesn't have to reduce car ownership because most of the world, most people don't own cars, right? It's really, you know, in, in the developed world, in the Western world, this idea that every family should have at least one, if not two or three cars, that's just, I mean, that's just a crazy model that absolutely cannot be replicated and, and isn't. It's already not the case in a lot of places. And as a result of that, in a lot of places, they're actually much further ahead uh, than us at designing cities, at setting up their cities in such a way that you don't need a car. Like in Tokyo, ultra-modern, huge megalopolis of 20-odd million people, 25% of all trips in that city are made by bicycle. So if they can do it there, you know, we can really do it anywhere, I say. And China, you know, for all the other problems, all the terrible environmental problems that China's economic development has caused, it's also the case that they are way ahead of the United States in terms of public transit and mass transit using trains to get from place to place, high-speed uh, intercity rail and, and subways within cities, and also, again, with bicycles. You know, it's, it's China that's really pioneering uh, a lot of sort of Uber for bike services, you know, where you can just like rent, grab a bicycle on any street corner, ride it to wherever you need to, and then just leave it there. A lot of that stuff is coming out of China. Well, Vince Weiser, I have to say that I went into this book not really knowing what to expect, but I will say that every chapter showed me a new way to look at this question. Every chapter showed me a new way to look at the world that I live in, and it was masterful the way that you wove all of this together for me as a reader. I know that my listeners, if they pick up your book, The World in a Grain, they're going to have their minds blown. And I want to thank you, first of all, for writing the book, but also thank you for taking some time today to talk about it with me on behalf of my show and my listeners. I just appreciate your time so much. Sure. Well, listen, likewise. Thanks for all those, those lovely things you said, and, and thanks for a really thoughtful conversation. We've been speaking today with Vince Beiser. He's an award-winning journalist, and he's written for Wired, Harper's, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, The New York Times, and many other publications. He's a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley. He lives in Los Angeles. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. 
That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.